Welcome to another episode of the Recommendations podcast, where we talk all things business, love, and science. I am joined by Paul Gordon, the CEO and founder of Catalyze, a consulting firm that transforms the way people make decisions. He's also the writer of top-selling Amazon book, Hard Decisions Made Easy, which is the best title for a book ever. Um, <laughs> and I'm so, so excited to really, really dive into this concept of decision-making today. So thank you so much for joining me, Paul. Thank you so much. It's amazing to be here. And, uh, you know, even the title of the book is a decision in itself. It <laughs> took some doing, I have to say. And we'll talk about how you made that choice. <laughs> But I, I'm so, I'm so excited. I said this to you before. I've been looking forward to this all day because when you and I met, it was just this instant um, appreciation and yeah. connection on the understanding of human behavior, and we sort of speak in a similar way. And mm. I was very much drawn to taking this conversation further because I think you're going to come through with so many practical pieces of support and advice because our entire life is based on millions of decisions all day every day and yes. if we can take some kind of a toolkit to optimize how we make those decisions i think we can transform lives and i think that's what you do every day so yes exactly. i want to know more tell <laughs> tell me all the things let's let's dig deep and let's start from the beginning all the things in lots of detail. That's what my wife always says. Um, <laughs> <laughs> from the beginning, um, uh, we're doing to start with the big bang, or <laughs> yes, <laughs> well, uh, it did start with a big bang. Yeah. Let's be honest. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, maybe I, I suppose perhaps a little bit about my journey. Um, you know, that has me standing here in uh, Sydney, in Australia, um, originally from the UK. So my life sort of probably started looking like it was fairly mundane and straightforward you know the usual just went to a state school and went to a you know fairly straightforward university and did electronics I'm an engineer don't tell anyone that that's a secret not really <laughs> um so uh you know and and then in 2000 was an interesting time because that's when I pretty much when I um uh, I actually graduated a long time before that but um in 2000 there was this world of dot com and everyone was going the world's taking off the web is it you can make a billion dollars on the web in no time flat. There's money investment floating around waiting for it. And at the time I was working in a, um, actually for my old university that I graduated from in a sort of technology transfer role. And me and a colleague, uh, we just said, you know, God, there's, there's all these idiots out there making money out of nothing. We're smart. Come on, let's do something. So pretty much, in fact, it, it was a, one of those moments of madness when we almost had a bit of a pact and we said, he was actually on holiday at the time. And he said, look, I'll give you my resignation letter, you write yours, and you hand them both over to the director of the, the place that we worked at. So I literally walked into his office and said, just so you know, Kevin and I are leaving and here's our letters of resignation. So it was one of those funny moments of kind of, why aren't we both in this together? <laughs> um, and then uh, just a, a amusing story given the, the topic of this podcast. Um, our first ever client. So Kevin and I set up a company called Where From Here. We were a software company, uh, kind of grappling in that very early world of location-based services, which was a long time before anything like a smartphone existed and you were lucky you could get three lines of text on your phone. So <laughs> tricky time to be working in technology on location-based services. But we had a client and the client was a, a very little known Finnish mobile phone company. 
No, it wasn't Nokia. It was another company called Benefon, the other mobile phone company. <laughs> the in other Finland. one. <laughs> and uh, and one of the, the the connections that we had with them, it said, "Oh, you must come out to Finland. We'll fly you out, and we'll you know work on this this piece of work together." And they flew us out and put us up in a hotel room. I don't know how much you know about Finland, but the Finns always argue with the Swedes who invented sauna. Uh, the Finns say they invented it. And of course, every hotel room in Finland has a sauna in it. And so they put us up in this twin chair hotel room with a sauna. And my co-founder and I at the time spent many evenings sitting in the sauna writing our business plan. It was uh, quite an amusing start to, the, start to that company. Sounds like the best startup <laughs> story ever. <laughs> it's it, Yeah, and, and it, it still makes me laugh when I think back to the history of it back then. Um, and that led us to doing some stuff in software that was there was a lot of fun in it. I ended up, I learned how to mountain bike, which I'd never done before. And, and we used to take clients out on mountain bike rides, which was a great way to get them out of the office and away from their phones. Um, but we was just a bit too far ahead of the tech curve. And then at some point, and a few years into it, um, I came across someone who was involved in a business called Catalyze. And I was like, oh, we've got software. He was like, I've got consulting. How do we put these two things together? So uh, one of the great entrepreneurial ways of growing your business and scaling your business is to put it together with another business because suddenly you're twice as big. And uh, that's what we did. So we combined the two businesses and uh, sort of the catalyze of today was born. And um, it really was an opportunity, I suppose, to bring together this idea of software, which is what I knew about and, and my business partner knew about and he knew about consulting. And I realized in that moment that actually I would, always wanted to be a consultant really because I like talking to people hearing what's going on for them seeing what could be a way forward and I suppose and, and I say this a lot to my clients these days that my engineering history helps me because I think of the world as, as a system this is what engineers do you know this idea of systems thinking and when I think about decision making decision making is basically a system of decisions every decision we make has another decision that comes off it or has caused by five other decisions that have happened and if we start to think about that relationship between decisions, the interconnections between them, we can start to maybe find a pathway through improving how we make decisions. And that was kind of the genesis for my passion in the world of decision making. And then I realized straight away that the idea of decision making, everyone, of course, of course, we make decisions. It's what we do. I'm a CEO, I'm a leader, I'm a manager, I make decisions. Yet no one thinks about decision making itself as an actual thing. And the idea of decision-making as a thing was a shock to many people. They're like, well, we just do it, don't we? Um, and then, of course, you realize, and I think Seth Godin said it last year at some point in one of his podcasts, he said, you know, decision-making is actually a skill. If we put as much effort into learning and training and improving decision-making as we do in every other skill that we have on project management or time management or financial management or going to the gym, then, you know, what the world would be a much better place, but we don't. So um, really seeing that decision-making as a thing and saying, okay, let's have our attention on how we improve how decisions are made is was kind of the genesis for what I did. And then um, kind of jumped the story forward a little bit, but uh, find myself living in New Zealand. So moved from the UK to New Zealand and creating Catalyze in this region in Australia, New Zealand, and then jumped from New Zealand to Sydney. And now here I am in Australia. And it's been a little side thing that might be interesting to some people. But what I noticed when I went from, so we had quite a history in the UK. I went to New Zealand and I was trying to sell decision-making and helping improve decision-making both in New Zealand and Australia. And in New Zealand, everyone says, oh, you've done all this great stuff in the UK. That's cool. Tell us about that. We'd love to learn from that. Yes, I think we can do some of these things. 
in Australia, it was much more like, yeah, we're different. You know, we're not like those guys in the UK. I'm not sure if that's going to work here. And so the path of the growth of the business has been quite an interesting like you could say slightly odd journey because basically we built the business in New Zealand off the back of our experience in the UK, particularly a lot of government work in the UK and the New Zealand government's quite similar to the British government, although of course tiny by comparison, but the the lessons were really apparent, whereas here it was much more like, oh, I think we do things a bit differently. Um, and actually now we're very successful in Australia and a lot of that has come because finally some various people in, in Australian government said actually, what you've done over in New Zealand is probably interesting, even though it's that tiny little country over there. Actually, some of the decisions they're making, some of the ways they're doing it, some of the challenges with stakeholders, it's relevant to us. And so now we kind of work pretty much across government and across the big commercial sector here in Australia. And now I find Sydney as my home, which frankly I love, so. I mean, what a journey. I have so many questions. I have so many thoughts. <laughs> I'm letting, letting myself process. Um, wow. There's a lot going on. And I yes. think the fact that you're working at that sort of top level is what really interests me because, you know, how different is it making decisions at that level from an organizational perspective, from a government perspective to making decisions in our everyday life? Like they hold the same principles I'm, you know, I'm, I'm can only assume that there is this amazing collection of data that you've carried through the years where you're finding these patterns and similarities. And that's what I really want to talk mm -hmm. about. I mean, firstly, again, just to give that context, who are you working with at that government level and what influence do you have? Like what decisions, I mean, you obviously there are confidential things you can't disclose, mm -hmm. but I mean, yeah give us sort of that I you know bird's eye view of what it is you do when you actually are are with these teams so um yes and I, I will be careful to tiptoe a little bit around some of the of specifics but, but but yes we're working <laughs> right now in, so we have an office in Canberra and right now the team in Canberra are working with uh some of the biggest government departments we're working in the Department of Defense for example we're working in the Department of Health um, we're working in the Department of Home Affairs. We've worked in most of the major government departments, and um, the and generally at senior levels because often the big decisions, of course, require stakeholders. Some of the decisions that we've been involved in supporting are worth billions of dollars of taxpayer money, and that's really why the government's actually got its attention on. We've got to make those decisions in better ways because we're stewards of you know, the Australians tax dollars, we better spend it wisely. It's a hard decision to make where to spend it. Do you spend it more on this thing or that thing? And so they really want some best practice help in doing it. Now, the interesting thing is, and this is, I guess, you know, there's different ways consultants work. We're very much a consulting model that we help them with a process so that they can make the decision. Um, and I like to make that quick, clear up front because when some people look at some of the decisions the government makes, says, did you do that? Is that your fault that we <laughs> just pointing did the finger. <laughs> is it your fault? And the answer is, <laughs> well, it, we might have ran the process, but ultimately the, and, and you know, kind of, kind of joking aside, it, it's actually fundamental to decision making because whether you or I make a decision or a minister makes a decision or a leader of a government department makes a decision, ultimately there's a human there 
and the human bit is the common ground. And if we don't believe in our decision, if we go, yes, I felt I had to make that decision, but I don't really believe in it, then sooner or later, it's going to go wrong. Sooner or later, we're going to run away from it. We're going to turn the business in the wrong in a different direction so it's critical that we own our decisions and that's fundamental to how we work because when we go into a department and work on a decision process with them we're holding their hand through it facilitating them through it and often bringing the external you know we can ask the hard questions that no one can ask um which you know there's lots of amusing stories most of which i couldn't share but i you know the the privilege to be honest i i I should be i don't want to diminish it but the privilege to be able to facilitate a decision workshop with some extremely senior people in it and press in on their thinking when they're sort of saying well this is how it should go and just go well let me just test that point to be able to do that is a privilege and it's only something that can happen often from the outside because my future career is not you know vested in whether i say yes to the right person in the room whereas that's a lot of the dynamic of course that happens in senior decision making so the it's it's critical that the individuals and the client owns the decisions that are made so our job is to have process that they believe in and go okay yeah we're confident in the outcomes that we get to off we go uh and so it's yeah that that, and that's where you know sort of to your sort of question which actually is asked quite a lot which is you know surely it's different right if you're making a billion dollar decision or a I wouldn't say a $1 decision because, frankly, your $1 decisions are made extremely unconsciously. But, you know, a $100 decision or a $1,000 decision, is it the same or is it completely different? And my answer is it's basically the same. It's the human being is the crucial thing. And a lot of, um, you know, our passion, my passion particularly, but our passion as a firm as well, is in how you bring the humans into decisions so that we don't just kind of, uh, turn on chat GPT and say, what do you think should be the best thing to, you know, what should I buy for my next car? Chat GPT, tell me the answer. Here's the answer. Great. Well, you go and buy the car and how satisfied are you with that? Probably not. And that, you know, the, the interesting human condition, I'm sure this will, this will strike a call with you, of course, is sometimes we want that, right? Sometimes we want to be able to distance ourselves. So actually tell me the answer, please. Then when I don't like the answer, well, it's your fault because you told me the answer. I'm not interested in that at all, but I know there's lots of consulting companies that, of course, that make a lot of money out of being, here's our recommendation and our names on the top of the report. So off you go. Perfectly valid, but I'm much more interested in you make the decision and you go, heck yeah, I'm going to really make sure this turns out. And so the impact in the world from the decision is is much more assured from you owning it. And our job is to have you own it by doing all the cool things with process and people and clever stuff. What I really enjoy about the way you operate is that you tie things back into this human behavior, like from that innate level, like at the, at the end of the day, um, it, it feels cliche, but it isn't. But the reality is when we make a decision based on our personal values, beliefs and ethics, if it is in business, as an example, you know that it's going to lead with love. Like it's coming mm. from that safe, grounded, emotionally regulated decision making you know like foundation where whether it's worth a thousand dollars one dollar or a billion dollars it's coming from a place of those foundational standards of like inner safety Mm. so you follow through with it your audience receive that information they're able to create a connection to it whether it's you selling a product whether it's you making a government decision it comes from that sort of fundamental core whereas 
you know, the opposite, which is what you just, just described is, you know, I don't really believe in it. I don't really understand it. Yeah, Someone yeah. told me to do this. You know, there's no follow through. There's no going above and beyond to share that story or connect to that story and then therefore connect to an audience that's receiving that information. Um, and I want to talk a little bit more about this because mm. to me, that is the recipe for good leadership and good decision making and positive impact on the world around us, mm. regardless of what that decision looks like or is. Um, you know, what I, I what are those things that you keep recognizing time and time again when it comes to good decision making? What is like that thing that you're like, that's a familiar characteristic that good decision makers possess? I think, yeah. My I think you've already put your finger on it. I think that congruence between what's important to you as the human being, as the decision maker, and the context of the decision, which you know is easy in our personal lives because it's one of the same thing. But as soon as you look at a government department, it's one thing to say, yes, as a leader of this department, what matters to me is my commitment to the Australian people, my commitment to not trashing the planet, my commitment to whatever it might be, whatever your personal commitment is. It's how does the, how do you have that align with then the commitment for the greater good? And sometimes there's tension in there. In fact, one of the fundamental things in decision making, it's all about trade-offs. It's all about you don't ever get to have your cake and eat it. You know, we like the story, but it's just not possible. Um, and and so somewhere, if, if I'm going to have more of that, I'm going to have to have less of that. And can I live with that? And that when you can see that tension and alignment between what's important to you, what matters to you, and the greater good, bringing those things together is really the secret to effective decision making because you know it's like anything when the sun's shining and the sky is blue everyone's happy and patting each other on the back but then when someone asks the hard question a little bit down the track and maybe a new lobby group appears and says i can't believe you did this those are the moments where you're either going to stand behind what you did or you're going to go oh well actually i'll just distance myself from this and run away and so that bringing those things together bringing that what matters to you who you are individually and what matters to the organization or the the company or whatever it is I'm you know involved in the decision making of is is fundamental to the whole thing and um and it's you know we work on many levels when I'm running workshops I'm you know at the very strategic level of big trade-offs and then at the very individual level just seeing the different behaviors around the table and maybe the positioning or the posturing or the you know why is that person not engaging in this conversation there's probably something else going on for them and and, and the kind of opportunity is to acknowledge all of that in fact probably one of the uh, the, the um and you pointed to it a moment ago i'd say the number one thing is in decision making is to get everything explicit where we get uncomfortable or poor decision outcomes or whatever is where there's a whole bunch of hidden stuff not even maliciously just hidden because we didn't notice it or because we felt a bit uncomfortable saying actually it matters to me about this thing as soon as we can get that explicit bring that onto the table be able to see it then we can engage with it and even if the answer might be i care about this thing and that can't impact this decision at least i've said it and i can deal with the fact i'm not going to take it into account so often it's um it, <laughs> there's a, a, a very old um, tv ad from this this age is me um back in the uk <laughs> so john west who make you know canned fish and various other things and their advert always used to be it's the salmon that john west rejects that makes john west salmon the best 
And can you that advert TV advert's probably 40 years old, right? So that really does show my age, but it shows up what an impact it had on me. And what that says is, and I think about that in decision making, it's as much about what you say we're going to give up or not take on board that highlights the benefit or the value or the commitment to what we are going to take on board. So that getting explicit and saying, no, this isn't part of the decision, or yes, this is, or here's an assumption that we've got. Um, assumptions are another great place to look in decision-making because, frankly, every decision is based on a whole ton of assumptions and all the time that they're hidden and sometimes intentionally hidden, right? So let's let's also acknowledge the sort of the, the, the dark side of the human condition, which is, yeah, I've made an assumption that it's going to go this way. I'm not going to share that assumption on the basis of the decision because I don't want them to know that. We make the decision with that assumption. It starts turning out. Everyone goes, "How did that happen?" Oh, well, there was this thing. So, um, yeah, the the the. Um, <laughs> I li I like this point. Just just it's something I say all the time. It's that people only tell you what they want you to know, mm. and I think that is such a big part of what you're expressing. It's just it's that holding back, and then it's the storytelling, and that ties into not just on a business level, but on a personal level in your in your relationships and your friendships and those dynamics where it's like what you assume can be um, sort of reconciled through the expression of curiosity, right? Mm. And yes. I think decision-making lies heavily on how curious you are and how vulnerable you're willing to be to express exactly as you said, those the the compromises or if we make this decision, this is what can happen. This is mm. the the other side. This is the consequence. Yeah, it's it, it's, and I think that's um that sort of vulnerability thing is a really interesting place to look. And you know, we know the modern speak about leadership and authentic leadership, and you know, we can quote Brene Brown until the cows come home, and so on. And all that stuff is really it's it, what it's done is, of course, elevated our consciousness to some of these things and made some of these things explicit. Not that any of it's new; it's just now maybe we have a framework where we can at least be comfortable to operate that way. And um, and so you know, a lot of our decision processes are about actually getting authentic. Um, and in fact, my first test of a client, of course, is to say, do you actually want to make a decision here? Or do you really just want to get your own way? Because if what you do is want to get your own way, and and I've had clients, I'm not going to name any, who've said to me, we know the answer. We just need a decision process that proves that's the right answer. Can you do that? And I say, look, I'm only going to do anything for you if you can be okay with whichever way it goes. Now, it may well be it goes the way you want. Um, and if I, I'll tell you an interesting story. Um, and this is, you know, a bit of old history. But uh, so back in the days in the UK, we were working with the, the UK government and they were making a really hard decision. This was where do we store the nuclear waste that comes from the power industry? Now, of course, you know, UK's had nuclear power for a long time. So and the waste doesn't just go away. You can't just turn it off or chuck it in the bin. You know, it has half lives and all the other issues with it. And it's you know, not pretty nice stuff. So the government had made a decision where to store nuclear waste. And when they made this decision and announced the decision, there was uproar. The environmentalists went off the charts on it. It was it was really messy. And so the government said, OK, we're going to pause that decision. OK, stop. Anyway, a few years later, they said, well, we can't not make the decision. So they said, well, how do we make the decision? And of course, we got engaged in the conversation and started to say, well, it's how you make the decision that's more important than the decision. OK, so we then ran this big process with them. In fact, at the time, it was the largest ever public consultation done by the UK government. So this is significant activity. Ran through this process, lots of people involved came to the end, the decision was reached, the decision was announced, everyone's clapping headlines, great decision, well done, government, off you go. 
of course, it was the same decision. So wow. the issue was not the decision. The issue was how they made the decision. The issue was being authentic about what are the considerations and what are the trade-offs. And once the um, you know other stakeholders can see that, there is no simple answer. It's not just, you know, you can't send it to the sun because the risk of putting it up in, in a spaceship and then it actually crashes and lands on, I don't know, New Zealand would be a, you know, a disaster, right? So so the the considerations, when people could see those considerations, once they're explicit, the trade-offs are here, there's a long-term trade-off, there's a short-term. You know, one of the criteria in that particular decision was what's the burden on future generations? Now, this is a hot topic at the moment if you think about, you know, the conversation about um, climate change and so on. It's like it might not be old grey people like me that have to worry about it, but certainly my kids, their kids and so on, there's a, there's a long-term legacy here. So to have that as an explicit consideration in the decision was very forward looking. And this was some years ago. Um, and that really is what helped because people could see explicitly, here's the trade-offs. If, we, if, we, if we're going to do that, we don't get to do this. What do we do about that? And then to have a process to work through. So it was an interesting, just an interesting example that, you know, I, I, I like citing it because we like to think the hard thing in decision making is making the decision. It's not really. I mean, that's why you have coins and, you know, random number generators. <laughs> the actual hard thing is having a decision that you can stand behind that then lives in the world and sticks. That's right. I think I think a big part of what you're saying is the accountability and the responsibility that you hold. Can you can you like own it? Can yeah. you own that responsibility and that accountability in the decision that you make? Can you be transparent? and open enough in the process that it was and, and the thoughts and the consideration that were involved in making that decision and then is there a consequence and have you considered it and are mm. you okay with what the consequence is if it happens yeah exactly and, and 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 the other aspect of it which is can you be okay with that all in the face of uncertainty which you know becomes really apparent in very big decisions right there's a high level of uncertainty as to actually if I, what's what does a thousand years look like when they when they just defined the criteria for long-term i think the long-term impact or something we asked the experts and said what does long term look like they said oh it's it's about 300 years because we can be pretty confident that within 300 years the normal mechanics of society will still exist you know there's a general you know you can have law and order and so on but beyond 300 years who knows what kind of society that might work in if you change that assumption who knows what's going to go on so when you start to think about some of those things your head explodes and then you realize but this is highly uncertain so how do we make a decision Given that the human condition will be, it's too hard, I won't make a decision unless I can be absolutely sure that if I buy that share in that company or I put my super in that place, it's going to grow. If I, unless I can be absolutely sure, I'm not going to do it. And we're not good at living in uncertainty. Humans aren't good. I think if you know, COVID has shown us a lot of things, one thing that, that COVID showed was uh, people felt there was more uncertainty in the world. All of a sudden, a global pandemic can cause the planet to shut down oh my goodness, you know, we live in an uncertain world, I never realized. It's, the world is no more or less uncertain than it ever was. It's just we've seen it. And so what's happened is uncertainty has become explicit to us. And that's now something we have to consider in our decision making. So, well, actually, it might not go that way. That's okay. Nothing wrong with that. Now we can see it. It's a much better place than not seeing it, make a bunch of decisions, and then realize that actually the world wasn't a certain place. What do you think from a human behavior perspective, like in this element of lack of control, which is basically mm, uncertainty, yeah. right? It's having this 
inability to determine what will happen next, which, as you said, we already live in this state. Mm. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You might get hit by a bus. You don't know what's going to happen in an hour. You know, it's, it's, it's reasonable to imagine that decision-making has to then connect on a human behavior level to like emotional regularity and that sort of internal awareness. Um, you know, there's a big correlation between these factors and so many other things, which I feel as though we can sort of dig a bit deeper, like so many years of doing what you're doing and this book that you've created. I mean, where do you start? What's the fundamental personal development to start with to then have better decision-making processes just from an internal perspective? I think, um, well, that's a good question. I, I, and, and, you know, self-awareness is, you know, frankly, the, 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 you could say table stakes these days, right, for anything, whatever it might be, but certainly in the realm of decision-making because noticing for ourselves what might be the things that play in our decision-making is going to give us some freedom. And it's, it's um, you know, sometimes that sounds like an oxymoron, right? It's like, yeah, if I realize how vulnerable I am or how biased I am or how predisposed I am or whatever, then I'd rather not know that. So I can just get on and blindly continue in my decision making. Whereas, you know, frankly, the answer is, well, if you can, if you can acknowledge that, then you can go, well, given that, what are some things I can put in place to help around that? And I'd say the, you know, the, probably the most, and it's always hard to, you know, for someone who does prioritization for a living and someone says, what's the most important thing? I always get stuck. <laughs> but uh, I'd say... You can name a few. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Here's all my 27 priorities. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'd say that the top thing I would say in, in that, particularly that uh, self-awareness and so on, is we can really deal with a lot of that with other people. So the fundamental thing in decision-making that could really make does make and can make a big difference is just thinking about who are the some other people might be to involve in decision making now that sounds simple in practice and uh, sorry simple in principle and, and tricky in practice um but i would say if, if there's a common theme of every single decision that we've been involved in supporting and helping in des deciding process the first thing is who are the stakeholders and how can we involve them in the decision process and that extends that that's a simple you know even at a, at a simple at your thousand dollar decision um i was on a podcast a couple of years ago talking about this and we ended up using the example of buying a new couch and it's like how could that be considered a multi-stakeholder decision well the answer is of course you're not the only person who's going to be sitting on it and so you might think about your family, your friends who might come around and sit on the couch. You might have, I don't know, occasionally someone stays over and sleeps on the couch. All of a sudden, I think about who is in, who's involved in the decision or who could be involved in the decision to buy a new couch. It's not simply you. And so many of the sort of vulnerabilities of us as a human being or the, um, let's say, the, uh, you know, the imperfections, um, can be we can help see through them through conversations with others in the realm of decision making and so the first thing i'd always say to anyone about decision making is before you make any decision of significance whatever that might be and significance to you might be a couch significance to someone else might be a house significance to someone else might be what i'm going to cook the kids for dinner um the before we're making any of that kind of decision then think who who are the stakeholders that can give you some freedom of being straight with whatever's going on about yourself that can bring a different perspective. Um, you know, diversity is one of these, you could say, overused terms, and we band it around all over the place in many different contexts. But frankly, diversity improves decision-making. It does. 
we as humans don't want it. Fundamentally, we're wired not for diversity. We're wired for hanging out and being connected with people like ourselves and, you know, reinforcing our behaviors by being people like us. So we, we, we don't want to do it. But actually, if we can get over ourselves and engage some diversity in our decision making, it always improves the outcomes as long as we have a way of using it. And and the reason I say that is, you know, one of the most, I was having a conversation last week, actually, with someone about an extremely significant decision that has high stakeholder impacts. And they were like, oh, but as soon as you ask the stakeholders, they're going to tell you their opinion. And now you've got 27 different opinions to grapple with. And isn't it better just to get on with it? And I said, well, it's it sounds naive, but actually what works is asking the right questions of your stakeholders. Don't say, which couch should I buy? Say, what matters to you in buying a couch? Because now you can say, oh, what matters to me is comfort or style or longevity or whatever, which is a different thing from you have to buy this one. Because now I'm making the decision. I've heard what matters to you is comfort. I've got that in my mind when I'm choosing a couch. It doesn't tell me which couch to buy, but it helps me in picking between couches. And that, that way of having other people part of your decision process is really can be some of the gold in to improve our own confidence in our decisions, improve our decision-making ability, and help us, particularly in that world of uncertainty, because other people bring other perspectives. Yeah, well, the world could go this way or this way. Okay, well, now I can see some ways it can go. I got a bit of space to think about the decision that I might, might want to make within it. I want to talk a little bit more about the psychology of language, because as you're talking, I'm thinking, you know, if we look at this uh, process from even a personal perspective, like, you know, relationships, family, friends, again, mm -hmm. sort of bringing it into your everyday yeah. life, there are the issues or the the downside to this diversity is there's always a consequence, right? Mm. If you express yourself to your partner about a particular decision you want to make, let's say, for example, you've just gotten a job offer and you need to relocate, it can be dangerous territory, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yep, or, yep. Um, you know, whatever it is, whatever, whatever is going on in your world, often decisions impact those around us, especially on a personal level. So it's, I think that's such an important perspective to, to really understand it's how we word things and how we communicate and express ourselves that can actually really, really help us through this, like navigating the complexity of so seeking advice or seeking support from a diverse group of people, especially if it's someone you don't get along with or don't necessarily necessarily agree with, um, it's that that the way that you're asking. And it's funny because I'm now remembering the first time we met. You asked me the question, "How do I make decisions? Or how do mm. I make hard decisions?" And I answered you with my 360 degree approach to how I look at the world, and that's. Mm. I don't just see things from you know that tunnel vision. I look at it from every possible scenario because my brain is working overtime and I ask everyone I know, mm. but I don't ask them to solve the problem for me. I ask them their experience share. I ask yep. them to give me their perspective on how they would navigate if they were in my shoes as, as an example. So can you guide us through perhaps some experiences where language really saves you in this, ability to then seek diversified support. 
Yeah, uh, uh, certainly. And and I think everything comes down to language. It's one of the things that distinguishes us as an animal from the rest of the animal kingdom. You know, our ability to have language and express ideas. Sometimes we underestimate it and sometimes we uh, misuse it, of course, which is, uh, you know, that's, that's yeah. the, let's not talk about <laughs> politicians. But the, the um, I think... A, a, a few things and and also what what i notice and and i this is, is had an interesting conversation with the park quite recently where we were helping them make a decision they were uh launching a fund for in, in, impact investing so delivering on broader than just economic outcomes but social outcomes and governance outcomes and environmental outcomes and uh it was in the world of re commercial real estate and what i noticed was as as i was facilitating this workshop i'm speaking the language of decision making so i talk about things like options and criteria and assumptions and constraints and stakeholders and all those things are from the world of decision making and as soon as i say a word like option i know exactly what i mean then they're sitting in the world of one of them sitting in the world of real estate and of course when they hear options they might hear a financial view of options Oh, options that's an investment term isn't it yes we have put options and so on it's like oh okay and then the environmentalists hear a different word in terms of options yeah what are the options on carbon sequestration or the options so all of a sudden one word has now got three different meanings in one conversation about decision making and so the, the realization i had is okay what there is for me to notice is the linguistic domain that I operate from decision making that you are from commercial real estate that you operate from impact investing those domains are distinct from each other and so where it, it's sort of I'm asking a question a slight answering your question a slightly roundabout way but it's where until we can get clean on the language that we're using we know we will trip up and the it what happens is another core and it's back to the assumptions thing someone's assumed when you say criterion they've assumed what that is. And so, of course, they will operate from that assumption. And suddenly you notice yourself at completely at odds going, oh, that, I, how did that happen? And then you realize it's back to the language. So getting explicit with the language is really important. And I think, um, you know, your example, it's, it's a great example about, you know, I've got this new job offer. It's going to involve us having to move countries or move state and I've moved countries twice, so I know what those decisions look like, uh, and they're not they're not easy decisions. And the the interesting thing is that, you know, when it comes to the conversation of someone who's directly impacted, like your family who are going to come with you or not come with you, um, you know, we it takes it takes both sides to be prepared to put into language what's going on for them, and when you know the advantage, I guess, of most of our consulting work is they have us as independents who have no stake or anything to do with what's going on who can help marshal some of that conversation so you might say you know imagine i'm having a conversation with you and uh, let's say your partner um to about a new job or a new location that you're going to the question i would ask is you know so have, have you decided already? Because if you have, let's not pretend this is a decision. This is actually a decision about how we do it, not whether we do it. But of course, your inclination will be to frame it with your partner as a whether we do it or not, with a background assumption called, I hope, I hope they say yes, I hope they say yes, because frankly, I've already decided I'm going for it. And so even knowing where you are and then framing in language, actually what's going on for you makes a big difference. I, we often talk about this in, in the world of decision framing and saying, what's actually the decision here? It might look like one thing, but often it's another. It's actually a decision about, I don't know, my reputation, or it's a decision about who I am in this relationship, or it's a decision about something else. 
but I can frame it either sometimes intentionally, you know, I can obfuscate the whole thing by framing it as this decision and hope that by making that decision, this other one gets made, or um, it's entirely unintentional. We didn't even realize. And, um, and so, you know, where I tend to start in any decision conversation is let's just be clear on what the actual decision that we're making is here. And if we've already made a decision, you might have already made the decision you're going to take the job. In fact, I probably even gave them a, a yes verbally over the phone when they offered it to me and said, I'll, I'll now make it work. <laughs> and now, you know, <laughs> I'll the, the get back to you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. The, the, and, you know, where language will will harm you is to say is, is in the conversation called, well, I'm thinking about this thing. What do you think? When really what you're not saying is I really want to do this thing. I want to know how we can make this work. And then there's a different conversation completely from how can we make this work? And, you know, reputation is, of course, is a big and reputation comes yeah. in many different shapes. You know, you could call that ego. You could call that um, whatever. Um, is frequently a factor that we bring into decisions that people don't think we should bring into decisions because they go, well, that's just a, you know, it, it, it's a, um, a selfish perspective or it's uh, the wrong thing to consider. Um, but actually, and this is a little bit of a side point, but I can't help making it, <laughs> is, the, is that in decision making, often there are things that matter to us that we don't want to admit matter to us. Yes. And that's, uh, uh, unless we can, again, in language, get explicit about that, we're setting ourselves up for upset. You know, it's like, and, and I always use buying a car and I get told off because it's a bit of a gender biased um, perspective. Um, so apologies for that. But the, you know, cars are a great example because the decision about buying a car can look like an entirely practical decision. You know, how many doors, how many seats, how many stars, safety rating, how much, you know, fuel consumption, all those things can look entirely objective, fully numbers driven. I just add everything up and there's the answer. Yet, how many people don't think about what color it is? How does it make me look? Does it fit well on my drive? Have other people got one or is it unique? Is it fun to drive? All these things are actual considerations that we have in our mind when buying a car, yet we sort of feel like we shouldn't. And then we ignore them and buy a car that we don't like. Or the other way, other side of the equation, another pitfall is of course we then start to think think about things that people tell us we should care about that we don't controversial but you know the environment when buying a car yeah well, you should buy an electric vehicle oh my goodness it's the only sustainable future i can't believe you're burning fossil fuels you should care about that now for you personally in your own situation you might not care about it but using that to drive your decision is going to leave you deeply unhappy and that is not a good outcome. So <laughs> it takes something for us to be able to, and this is where the conversation with a partner, a stakeholder can help because we can say, well, like exactly as your example of your 360 view, what considerations might you have in this situation? What considerations have you had? What can you think about? It's um, and one of the things that we're noticing, I'm, I'm noticing a lot more um, and we're doing a lot more work of engaging in decision making with Indigenous and First Nations people in Australia, for example, where there's a it's a different cultural realm as well as a different linguistic realm, as well as, a, you know, there's a, there's a different world. And of course, they're stakeholders in many of the decisions that were involved in the same as, um, uh, you know, everybody else. And so the the conversation there is, well, who are we to think what's important to them? 
But of course, we often do that. Oh, yeah, I've taken all the perspectives into account. I've thought about that person, what they care about, that person, what they care about. And actually, the best answer is to ask the question, okay, in this decision about me taking this new role or how are we going to make this work, what actually matters to you? Let's, let's you know. And of course, it takes a lot of courage and, and maturity to be okay with the answer that comes back. You know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not Pollyanna. I'm not, not going, oh, yes, every relationship is built on such solid communication foundation. Say, what matters to you? And you go, well, actually, what matters to me is, I don't know, my mates at the football club. Uh, you know, they might, people might not be prepared to say that. And you might not be ready for that answer and to even deal with it. Um, but the, I guess my key point is, getting these things explicit in language what matters and that's why like i say terms like what's important in this decision what matters what are the considerations is a really helpful way of inviting something that's useful to you versus inviting something that's not useful what should i do or where should we go turns into a very you should go here and then if you think that's not the place to go, you've now created a problem for yourself because one of your stakeholders says, go here, and you're saying, I'm not going to go there. You know, now what does that mean to them? Oh, well, my opinion is not valid. Why did you bother asking me? I shouldn't have said, you know, you, you, I mean, we know how that, how that goes. I mean, I, I so much can relate to everything you're saying because, I, again, I sort of reflect back onto a personal experience of mine that I think really ties in beautifully what you've just shared. I... I was in the earlier stages of my company, Soul, and I was very much driven by this dream of what success looked like at that point. I was quite young. I was only, you know, 23. We'd been operating for already almost three years. And success in my mind was, you know, X mm. over here. Yeah. And yeah. my business partner is my mother. And success, right. her mind, was over here. <laughs> something completely, completely opposite. Yet we'd never, we'd never communicated that to each other. We just both had presumed that we were walking in the same direction. Mm -hmm. And we experienced a point where we had to make a really big decision. And that was, do we let these investors come in and become shareholders of our business and invest and potentially take us to a new height? Mm -hmm. um, and it caused unbelievable breakdown in our relationship. And this is a really good example because you think, you know, family, mm. good, healthy foundations. <laughs> yeah. I have to laugh so much. I love my mom. She's amazing. Our relationship is great now. But it was at a really terrible state. And we were fighting. Like, you can't imagine the arguments and the disconnect and the mm. completely disproportionate um, vision of where we were trying to take this company and by having these arguments we were clouded by the reality which was the decision to have these investors come in was going to be wrong anyway because they were assholes <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. they were just consequently also terrible people yeah and it, it just I remember the breakdown moment, which was finally me having this awareness to actually sit down with mom and go, what do you, what do you need? Mm. What will make you happy every day? Let's start with that before, forget about the investors, forget about me, forget about my life. You're an, you're a human, you're a person. You're not my mother in this. Mm. You're your own person and my business partner. 
what do you need? What are the core things that will drive you to feel happy and fulfilled in life? And let's look at that. And then I'm going to share the same with you and let's see where we align and let's see where we want to take this thing. And then we'll make a decision based on that. Forget about this opportunity. It's not important. And of course wow. that led us to, you know, repair and heal and work on what was such a terrible time, which was almost six months of just oh, hating each other. Yeah. And, you know, so it, it really, I really reflect on that. And, and I try to consider what it was that took me to that awareness. But that's the big lesson that I learned is having mm. capacity to actually step outside of the decision and ask yourself, A, are you operating from a place of fear or love? Yeah. From that real innate, you know, spiritual um, feeling. And then what do I need? What do I want? And how is it going to impact those around me? Yeah. Wow. That's very um thank you for sharing that example. It's um very uh foresighted of you in that conversation because one of the things you said that struck me, which is common, is so one first thing I'll say is context is everything in decision making. And often we don't have the context. We don't know where we're operating from or what we're operating in. And we either don't want to or we just don't know. Uh, and what what I heard you say there is you created the context for the relationship. In this conversation, you're not my mother, you're a person, you're my business partner. And to be able to distinguish that as context for who you are in this conversation, in this decision is critical because, of course, each different dynamic of a relationship type. And that's, you know, why I, I'm always a I always shy away from family businesses because of course they've got so many so much context that's tied up in it, right? And and so to be able to say, okay, in this conversation, in this decision, in this way that we're thinking about things, who we are is this business partner to business partner. This has no impact on, you know, the time we spend going on holiday together or whatever it might look like, but that's who we are in this conversation. Therefore, we need to operate from that perspective in the decision process. We'll immediately, as you say, un unclouds it a bit, allow someone to say, well, actually, when I think about this from the direction of the business, here's what matters to me as a person, irrespective of my relationship to you, can then give you some freedom to start to unpick things and see, you know, what are the assumptions that are going on? And what you did, of course, was got, actually, this is not a decision about do we let these investors in or not? This is a decision about the future of the business and the growth plans or the direction or whatever it was that has come to light because we've been offered an opportunity. Now, this is interesting because I, 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 I see this a lot that, you know, I, I talk about, of course, you know, decisions make the world go round. In fact, without a decision, no action, no change. So decisions are the fundamental source to the planet working. Um, yet, of course, the world doesn't tend to look like it. it's a series of decisions. It's often opportunities. Someone says, oh, you should get, okay, someone tells you, you should change your business. Chat GPT's taken over the world. It looks like an opportunity or a threat or whatever it might look like. But actually, what's the decision in there? And the same thing with your um, with your mum, you know, investors knocking on the door, opportunity, let's invest, do we invest, to be able to pause for a second and kind of back up from that a moment and say, well, actually, has that made us have a decision about the future of our business? Has that made us have a decision about who we are for each other or whatever is really important because, um, yeah, the way the world works mostly is opportunities happen or problems occur, of course. You know, a problem occurs. Oh, yeah, the business is, I don't know, half my staff have just left. That's a problem. It doesn't look like a decision. And most of what I tend to do with people is say, well, let's just from there, what are the decisions to be made? Because it might not be a decision, you know, half the people who left my business might not be a decision about how to replace them. It might be a decision about, I don't know, pivoting the business, or it might be a decision around, oh, heck, 
we got to do something with the culture because that's what had people leave. It's got nothing to do with the decision to replace them or not. So I love that. Yeah. I, I think um, very much so I, I relate to that as well because I, I like to categorize people in two different ways when it comes to business specifically, mm. and that's the solution-based thinking and the problem-based thinking. Mm. <laughs> and solution is turning everything into a decision from the outlook of opportunity being a positive thing and yeah. i think using that example of oh my staff keep leaving well great that sounds like the perfect opportunity to have the space and capacity to relook at your systems and processes and how you onboard and how you train and how you have culture and you know what is actually happening it gives you capacity right or you can sit there and be a victim and look at everything that is terrible and fall into a deep spiral of, <laughs> yes. you know, yeah. <laughs> and and I, it's, it's really interesting because personally, I've always been programmed that way. Mm. I'm very much solution-based from a very young age. My earliest memories of how I do life mm. is based on that thought process of like, oh, this happened. Okay, now there are all these great options, but, you know, what's the best one and what's going to get me the result that I want to, how can I achieve this and the next thing and the next thing. Um, but I know, I know we can rewire, we can, we can teach people to think differently. You know, I, I use the term lateral thinking quite mm -hmm. often in this sort of concept. Um, what is your take on the process of trying to shift somebody's mindset to think more this way? What, what does that look like for you? Oh, that's a good question. I think um, so. I, I and it's no some no mystery. No, what's the word? No um, surprise that we have the word transformation in in what we do. We're transforming the way the world makes decisions. And I think of that shift that you refer to there as a transformation, as in it's a it's a you you go through it. It's like the world always looked this way, and I can't imagine what it looked like beforehand. And that's okay. So what does it what does it cause? What does it take to cause that? And um, I'd say the the fundamental thing, of course, is we need to see that for ourselves. Uh, you know, it's another reason why asking the right questions can help and the wrong questions can be very hin can hinder you significantly. Because if someone says, "What should I do?" and the answer is "Do this," then that's their answer. But if the answer is what should I do? Have you thought about these things? What? How could that look? And then in your own curiosity and discovery, you see your way through that. So if I can, if I can discover for myself this idea that actually a more lateral or a solution-based approach actually is going to help me, then I've discovered it for myself. I've got no question about whether it works or not. I've not got no question about whether it's a good idea or not. It's mine. I own it. I'm, I'm, I will now operate from there. So the question always is, how do you have people see that for themselves? And that's, you know, just in the same thing as why we call, why we talk about what we're doing is transforming the way the world makes decisions is because and we use the term decision thinking, which is really um, the idea of bringing structure and consciousness and collaboration to decision making so that uh, you never think about decision making in any other way, you automatically go to, well, who are the stakeholders here? What's my process? How do I consider value? That's uh, an automatic thing. And the way you have moved into that way is have people uncover that for themselves. So see for themselves what's the bias that's at play and what they're doing. And people will notice that when they, you know, through the right kind of exercises or whatever. Uh, and then 
reinforced with when I operate from there, oh, I've got so much more freedom. Okay, well, why would I ever go any other way? So I think there's a, a discovery and then there's a reinforcement from them discovering for themselves that this solution-based approach is going to give me the freedom. It's really interesting because it also makes me think of something that um, is, you know, you could say is a, has been a big shift in the world. And I guess it depends, you know, what you operate from. But um, not sure which year, but a few years ago. So Lawrence Fink, who's the CEO of BlackRock, the big, um, like, unbelievably massive investment house basically made a statement to the market and said uh, from now on unless your company is doing something good as well as making money where you won't be one of our portfolio companies and that statement of suddenly it matters to do something other than just make a pile of money from a sort of global leading investor like him put a ripple out through the market there was no you know you, you could not hear it. He wrote to all of the companies he invested in. Um, and that moment of, uh, you know, do good and you will get good outcomes, which, of course, we all know about. And people like you and I talk about this all the time and, and operate from it. But many people don't. They, many people go, yeah, it's already well, but we still got to make money. How are we going to make money? It's like, well, you discover for yourself of operating in that way that transformation called actually if authentic leadership looks like being prepared to say i don't have the answer or being prepared to say you know we're still working out or whatever um when i operate from there and i keep operating from there and i keep standing by that because that's what i and the results do come but you've got to be ready for the results to take some time to come and that's the challenge is, as you say if you can start to shift from a to a solution um oriented approach then um you will see why that is a valuable thing to do and of course you'll keep doing it it's exactly when we um design decision processes a core factor in pretty much any decision process is the idea of some kind of criteria some things that you're trading off which can be super you know one of the principles of decision thinking is there they have to be allow for stuff that is intangible as well as tangible so don't just make your decision on the best profit line or uh, the best revenue line make them on things like reputational customer experience or whatever so have all those things in your mind um and uh the ha, i forgot the point i was going to make it was going to be a really important point i was literally on a, I, this is such a great illustration of this point that we we're just making and now i'm gonna it's all right. we can we can edit this gap <laughs> Yeah. No, that's okay. I don't mind. I, it's it's uh it's just my my often my brain goes in so many different directions at the same time that trying to trying to bring them all back together is is tricky. You know what? I think we'll we'll circle back to it. I feel like it's mm. going to pop back up to you. But yeah. what what I'm noticing is really really beautiful because so another the new company that I've started is um basically in the area of health and tech. But the way we run it is the integration of mindset and psychology in decision making in the sense of the personal decision to be responsible for your health right. and the education and the tools that we provide you then with the functional testing so we can look at your health in a fully integrated holistic way and we give you all of this support. So what I'm, what I'm noticing is that the decisions, the decision making process that you keep coming back to is this connection to the authentic self mm. coming from a state of self-empowerment and regulated emotions really if we really like yeah. understand it and then that accountability and that responsibility and then that preparedness <laughs> that's not a word yeah. but <laughs> oh, <it is> a <laughs> the, word. <laughs> the readiness and the preparedness of making the decision 
right? Yes. And the reason why I'm giving this um, context is because you look at somebody who, say, has been sick their whole life, mm. who's had a, you know, I'm a great example. I'll use myself. I had an autoimmune condition since I was very young. I was incredibly, incredibly sick in 2016 when I started Soul. I was in a wheelchair. I went into a walking stick Goodness. for years. Yeah. And it all came from chronic pain mm. from wow. this autoimmune condition. And my journey for my whole life was basically reliant on the definition of who I am is someone who is sick. Right. And yeah. I am yeah. able to categorize every decision I make based on the fact that I get to use that as an excuse. So the concept of being healthy and getting better was hindered because I was stuck in this identity mm. of I am unwell, no one can make me feel better. And I kept wow. using yeah. this, right, yeah. as a tool of like, yeah, okay, I've created a successful company that's global and we're like one of the top brands, but imagine what I could do if I wasn't sick, mm. <laughs> which is such bullshit. And you see where I'm going with this. Oh, it's, yeah. And, and what I work with my clients now in, in Four Rooms, which is the new company, Four Rooms, because we have four steps or four rooms to get you to optimal health. Um, oh. Room one is mindset, and we do all the mindset support first because you can't make a choice you can't make a decision to actually optimize your health until you're ready mm. yeah, yeah. And, until you've made the empowered authentic decision in your own truth in your own curiosity and your own awareness to actually be ready to go on the journey so i think it's sort of part of the point you're trying to make here mm. <laughs> <laughs> which is that readiness to actually step into the decision that you make as well. Yeah, I, I, exactly. And and you, as you were speaking, uh, it, I kind of reconnected with my my train <laughs> yeah, thought, thought <laughs> which was yeah. Thank you. So thank you. Um, and it, it is exactly that uh, um, preparedness. And it is a word, by the way. If, if any oh, of my great. defense clients are working, they preparedness is a very big thing in, in the world of defense. But the the this idea and and the same thing about this solution oriented versus problem oriented thinking is when we're helping decision process we're looking at criteria often you would ask someone well what matters in this decision and depends who you ask and especially if you have people that are in the technology space or um sort of a more uh you know engineering mindset they'll say risk they'll always say risk oh yeah it's yes. the minimizing risk is what matters so you can look at risk as in a minimization which is a problem oriented mindset or you can look at look at risk as in well Without the risk, what's the value that we're scared about losing from the risk? Because actually, what the reason we care about risk is not risk in itself. We care about risk because it's a risk to losing something else. And so yes. we're often trying to frame things, move the framing from, you know, 10 risk criteria, that is what the engineers want, to, you know, 10 benefits criteria, which can represent exactly the same situation, but you're now approaching it from a different place. We also use, um, it's interesting, and I wasn't ever imagining to get to this on this conversation, but anyway, it's, it's an interesting, just just something that's that's kind of uh, an interesting approach that we use often in, in for very big decisions. Um, we use this idea of what's called zero-based budgeting. And, uh, you know, if you look at look at an organization, say a big corporation, you say, oh, we've got to make some significant decisions about reshaping the organization. There's 
ways that that can happen. One way that can happen is let's look at what we can tweak and adjust a little bit and ask each head of department. They've got to give up 5% of their budgets and put into a new fund to do something else with. Um, or you can do what we call a zero-based approach. And this is you know well understood in particularly the world of finance and accounting. But the idea is, well, let's imagine we have nothing. Let's, let's actually imagine hypothetically we've turned the whole thing off. Now we're going to turn it back on a piece at a time. Which pieces do we turn on first? And so that positive mindset of instead of I've now lost this department. Oh, my goodness, I can't be without that department. Instead, I'm saying we well, haven't got it anyway. Do you want that department? Oh, heck yeah, that drives so much value. That's so useful to me. And so that that approaching it from a positive perspective can be really helpful not least because we as humans have a strong loss aversion i mean if, if there's another thing that covid illustrated and i've got you know billions of illustrations of what covid's done for decision making but this this the strength the, the impact of loss aversion so we as humans care twice as much about not losing something we've got as we do about gaining something and yeah. so when the government says we're going to lock you down you don't get to leave the loss of freedom is really impactful on us compared to some of the benefits called, well, you get to eat home-cooked food, you get to spend time with your family, some of the things that, you know, and I don't want to understate the impact of COVID, but it's a, as an illustration. And that, okay. that but loss it's a of really, It's such a good point. I just want to say something because, mm. again, you remind, it's this theory of like, you know, if you're, you know, 24 hours go by, it's, it's a whole day and you're walking down the street and you pass 10 people and out of 10 people, nine of those people give you a compliment. Mm. And say, oh, you look so good. Your hair looks great. Your skin looks nice. You wear a nice dress. But the 10th person you run into go, oh, you look a bit fat today. Yeah. yeah. You're never going to get past that. <clears throat> right? We're stuck. We're like, our, we're in that wired loop to, you know, just be so caught up in the negative. And I think, again, it comes back to this, like, uh, okay, you're in lockdown. It's COVID. So the only thing that you can see at that front part of your brain is what am I losing yes yeah and why are we wired that way well you know the, the a lot of the arguments would say it's what has us stay safe because you know at, at our heart staying alive is fundamental so therefore you know the um you know, and you can, there's many models. Most people look at Maslow's hierarchy of need as a model that sort of starts to say, what's the actual fundamental stuff that keeps us living and breathing? And let's take care of all that first. And then we'll start this highfalutin self actualization stuff later, you know, when we finally get around to it. Um, and, you know, when I look at the neuroscience as well, and you look at how, uh, you know, the, 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 the lizard brain, the amygdala, the, the fight or flight response part of our brain, you look at how it's automatically wired to avoid danger and to have our body ready to go in the face of danger. You know, you can see, yeah, there's plenty of good reasons why we've survived as a human race on the planet for so long, given, you know, you could say our predecessors as different species haven't done so well, like the dinosaurs, for example. Um, you could say, well, you know, what's that about? And I think it's, it's things like that mechanism that have built in. The job in decision-making is to acknowledge that's what's at play and then yeah. say, well, what about that? Because the temptation, of course, is to look at ourselves and go, flawed human beings, we've got no chance of making better decisions. Actually, let's let's leave it to the computers because they don't have this emotional piece or this loss aversion. They just get on with stuff. Um, and then we forget that, of course, somewhere in the, and, you know, there's all sorts of interesting examples. And I'm, I'm a very pro-AI person, by the way, but lots of examples of where the sort of, 
actually the AI is biased. Why is it biased? Well, because of the training sets, because of the observations it's been using, because of where the humans have come in and what's that about. So, you know, I'm, I'm yes. <laughs> but look, on this, on this topic of like the risk, right, and how that traps us, you look at entrepreneurs as yep. a characteristic of people, right? I, again, a really good example. I was recently on the phone to one of my best friends and she's been in a steady nine to five, nine to five corporate job her whole life. Um, and I'm the crazy one that's never had a job ever. <laughs> um, and she thinks I'm insane and she just cannot under any circumstance really understand or connect to how I am comfortable in that state of uncertainty and risk of, you know, if something goes wrong, you're fucked. Like you mm. don't have wages to sit on, no one's gonna pay me. I have to pay everybody else first. That's mm. a responsibility as the, the founder. And she recently discovered her passion and decided that she's almost ready to leave her job and her comfort wow. and her security to go and start this new career and be a, a sole entrepreneur. And it is the consistency of me coaching her for hours mm. going, <laughs> I hear you, I understand the risks but what does your gut say? You know, what What are you really passionate about? What do you want to wake up every morning and do? You're miserable, you don't stop complaining. Are you telling me that that still, that feeling of having those consistent wages outweighs the fact that you literally want to bang your head against the wall? Like, it, it's such an interesting concept of how, you know, I know myself, I'm surrounded by other entrepreneurs, that feeling of risk is not debilitating, rather it is exhilarating because I look at risk and I go look at the reward. Mm. I don't see risk, I see reward, and risk to me is just the time and space between where I am now and what I'm trying to achieve, and I either take action and make a decision or time and space evade me and mm. nothing happens. <laughs> so it's, it's it's a really interesting um, concept in that capacity of how different people can be wired, whether it's the biochemistry, whether you know it is an excess of dopamine like I have, <laughs> yep. um, or whatever else is or going on. Or a deficit on. The other, on the other side of the equation as well, right? So exactly. Yeah, and it, it, it's, you know, so much about it is, like I say, maybe I'm a broken record now, but that's why other people are so important because yeah. other people will provide the different perspectives, will sit outside of ourselves and help us see things that we may or may not want to see. Um, but really, you know, if, if I was to say that, uh, maybe I am a broken record, maybe I've already said it, but it, you know, the one thing we can do immediately to improve our decision making is just think who else could I have a conversation with? And how can I have a conversation that doesn't just turn into, oh, I re talk to my mother, she gives me advice that I don't want to take. Yeah. That's that's a lot of people's experience of, have, of involving others in decision making. Yeah. Um, and in fact, you know, it's really, we, we're working with a, a, a corporation in Sydney and they're basically shifting the way all of the whole organization makes decisions. So we're training them in a, in a process called the advice process, which is specifically designed to say, you, you're empowered to make decisions wherever you sit in the organization. Here's the approach you follow. At this point, you seek advice. Now, the, the hardest thing to do and the thing we put most of our attention on is say, well, what does seeking advice look like? Because what it could be is a very thinly veiled way of keeping in place the old way of making decisions, which was basically all decisions floated up to the leadership team and you had to wait for the leadership team to decide and then you got on with what you were doing. So it could look like you go and get advice from the leadership team, which means you ask them to make the decision and they tell you the answer. And of course, what we're 
really doing is having them discover, no, it doesn't look like that. Now, that requires training and courage on both sides of the equation. It's as much about me asking the leadership team for advice and the leadership being prepared to give advice but not give direction. Oh, my advice is you should talk to so-and-so. My advice is you should think about some of these considerations. My advice is have you considered some different options? That's advice. Not my advice is if you come forward with this answer, we might say yes to it. And that's uh, it's it's really subtle, but it's one of those things that um, you know. I don't think that's subtle. <laughs> I don't think that's subtle at all. <laughs> well, <laughs> dramatically I, different. <laughs> I guess the, the subtlety often is it is in the is in the what you hear, right? And and and, and <laughs> actually your linguistics, um, because of course, if you're actually listening for how do I get the steer as to what's going to get me approval, even though it looks like advice, but really give me a wink when you're telling me the thing that's actually going to make the difference to me getting right. this thing signed off. And so it, you know, it's a it, it's it's an interesting place to look because I think. If we can start to bring that mindset of who are the stakeholders in this decision, whoever they might be, and sometimes it might be just one or two people, and sometimes it might be tens of people, and you know we've dealt with situations with hundreds or more of stakeholders that that have something valid to contribute. Um, and one of the things I would also say, just just uh, I'm drinking a bit of my own Kool Aid, but we, we you know we talk about active stakeholder participation in decision making, which means it's not they can actually participate in the decision. You know, bigger decisions, you can have people in a room and say, we're making a decision together here. And that's really powerful because Very. if yeah. you are a stakeholder, you might gain nothing specific from the decision. It might not be you that gets money in your back pocket or a new job or whatever. Um, but if you can participate in it and you can see how the decision gets made, even if it doesn't go your way, you can still be satisfied with it. And that frankly is um and it's an expression i used the other day and someone laughed at me and i'm not sure it's appropriate or not but anyway to me that's the jesus nut of of decision making <laughs> the the, the, the... <laughs> Yes, <laughs> <laughs> because because of course you can't. It is impossible to please all the people all the time. And you know what? What I really want to say is that it's it's so interesting to me because you have these perspectives and these definitions on that top level, yeah. um, big corporate sort of mindset, and then I take the same theory, but I talk a lot about it on you know the everyday sort of decision-making perspective. And again, I'm reflecting back on a conversation I just had recently, which is that people really like to get involved. Mm. Where often you can, you can so surprise yourself by the amount people want to help mm. and the amount people want to feel needed and to contribute. So if we look at a simple decision on a personal level where you're just choosing, I don't know, what bag to buy for God's yeah. sake, yeah. and you involve your best friends, whoever they are to support you in this journey magical things happen to the foundation mm. of your relationship trust vulnerability inclusion and then look at a decision then on a small business level where it's like you know should we um, engage in this partnership mm. yes as the founder you want to sign up like i'm talking small teams you know that yeah, maybe yeah. have five or six employees right it's still impactful but if you include that team if you empowered them to feel like they're needed and they're valued and they're their opinion matters it's it goes so much further because they're invested emotionally in this decision whether or not it was theirs or you know the other colleague or the other the other team member it's so powerful again it's coming from that you know inclusion and good leadership where people are together that togetherness of decision making i think is is 
very, very important for the future of doing good in business and also in relationships on a personal level. Mm. Uh, and you put your finger on a really important point, which is, and you know, and, and I know sometimes when I say it, it sounds like, oh yeah, you're just you know um, pushing your own barrow. But the actually decision making is, you know, so there's decisions to be made. That's what decision making looks like. But decision making as a vehicle for engagement, as a vehicle for building culture as a vehicle for delivering transformation or change is such a fundamentally powerful vehicle because as you say the, the even the conversation for, with your friends about the new handbag or whatever it is that you want yeah. to buy causes a different basis for that relationship and what there is for us to be responsible for as the decision makers in that process or whatever is to find the ways to have them engage that are positive and constructive and helpful and don't turn into well you told me to do this and I didn't do it so you don't care about me anymore and that's exactly. you know that's that's where it's delicate right because we know yeah. that the the the, ham, the bag example is a really good one because if everyone's got their own opinions to what's the best bag and and you know you the, the, often remembering we're all humans in this so the the question which which bag should i buy often the answer won't come for which is the one that makes that works best for you it comes from if i was you i would buy that because i like pink or i like you know that particular yeah. brand and so how we marshal all those inputs and ideas is a big part of the game as well um because often other people's opinion is given by their opinion for themselves or whatever it might look like and that's all really helpful to understand as long as we can deal with it in a conscious way rather than just going yeah. oh god now i feel an idiot because i bought the wrong bag well, it's about the data collection, right? It's gathering. But a, a really good example, again, which I, I, I want to, I always like to sort of lean into these practical examples mm. because I find yeah. people listening, um, you know, really get so many golden nuggets. And it's uh, the best thing I ever discovered, I actually stole from my brother. So he's really successful. He's got quite a few companies, huge teams. Um, and the thing that changed the way he operated to be more successful was the way he engaged with his team to make decisions. Mm, and what he yeah, produced yeah. was something called a wiffle session, which was what I feel like expressing, W-I-F-L-E. Uh -huh, yeah, yeah. And he basically allocated a set time once a week where everyone in the team would go around and express something, whether it was a gratitude, whether it was a grievance, whether it was a problem that they needed advice or support on, or whether they wanted to share something even in their personal life. And this allowed them to brainstorm, to mind map, to navigate, to support, even in that sort of gestalt style mm, solution yeah. process of how to navigate whatever was coming up because everyone felt safe and everyone could express without consequences, even though the boss was in the room. <laughs> so I, I stole his beautiful theory and it very much aligned with, with my culture and very much supported big decisions. And yeah, I think if there's a takeaway that to everything that you and I keep sort of mirroring yeah. back to each other, it's coming back to terms with, you know, inclusion, support, diversity, authenticity, um, you know, respect to those in the room with you and connecting to those needs and wants and getting to the core of what the decision actually is and the process you're willing to take to get there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All of those things and I think, um, you know, and I and I don't want to what's the word pretend because of course it's easy, to, especially when I made my comments earlier about AI and so on. It's easy to kind of hear what I talk about in decision making. You go, oh yeah, there's no room for data, but of course I, I I've got data. to address that. Data is critical, and 
the 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 success in decision making comes from bringing together the data and the human beings and not That's having it. it one way or the other because it's tempting for it to go all one way and you know people say oh as long as you've got the right smart people their experience will say everything we don't need any data no and equally well we've got you know we are, we know we're trending towards i think it's was it perfect data i think the expression i've used i've heard somebody else use which is where there will be data about everything you can imagine you you, you think oh i need to know the data about this it exists because of how um ubiquitous sensors are and everything uh that, that's also not sufficient you need the human beings and the data together but and the data is the human being that's what people well, don't understand yeah. <laughs> it's like the data comes from the human being the data is the collection <laughs> of the advice given put down and then considered and reviewed that is the data yeah and, and, and actually um given, given <laughs> that i can be in my in my you know bringing a bit of decision science to it the the um which is a thing in itself but is the uh distinction between data and value and and we often use this in decision processes to help unpack some of that challenge right so i, I can have the piles of data and exactly as you say the someone saying you know pink goes better with your dress than purple or whatever uh that's data yeah how that bears on the decision is a value judgment and we got to, if we can distinguish those two things from each other we get a very helpful place to look which is i can bring all the data i like but still someone's got to so say well what does that matter in the in the realm of this decision how much difference should that make how much do we care about that and by you know artificially separating those things out because of course they happen in an instant in our brain that gets collapsed together but when you know as we can pick them apart a little bit we can and you know back to my lame example of a car there's data up the wazoo about the car with your star ratings and your speeds and everything else but of course the data isn't the answer a car that goes twice as fast as another car is not twice as good or twice as attractive <laughs> necessarily depending on the context right it might be if you're a you know racing driver um so let's not pretend that the data gives me the answer but knowing that is valuable to me and it does have an impact on the decision and how i relate the two to each other is going to be is fundamental to being satisfied with our decision outcomes which is probably the most you know i think that's a common place that we're, we're a lot of what what we're you know kicking around here is this idea that you know there's one thing about the decision it's more about the consequences am i happy with that am i satisfied are the you know are people on board you know back to my inappropriate term it's really the you know you can't please everyone all the time but you can actually get to a decision that people who didn't like that decision but they can still support it and go that's okay yeah you didn't you bought the wrong handbag as far as i'm concerned but i can be okay with the one that you did buy and that's great and I think there's a, you know, a lot of that can be in the transparency and the human engagement and people see how lit up you are as you walk down the street with it, it means it's the right handbag. It doesn't matter whether they think you should have bought the green one. That's right. I love it. I mean, oh, we can talk for another <laughs> 17 hours and, and I do want to. And I want to tie this together with yes. one question. Um, what is the hardest decision you've ever had to make? <sighs> well um that's a good question uh and some i'm you know okay to talk about i'll, I'll say two i'll say two because when i think about moments in my life that are, that are pivotal uh one of the hardest decisions i've ever had to make was the decision to leave the uk and move to new zealand and 
it was hard because my wife had moved to New Zealand already. Uh, she'd taken up a role, and so it was, you know, time to time to move. But my involvement in the business was quite new at the time, and so you know, I didn't really know whether it was going to take off in New Zealand and Australia. And you know, it was like being a startup again, and I didn't really want to be a startup again. And and so there was a lot of factors at play. And of course, my entire life was in the UK. I'd spent nearly forty years living in the UK, building up friends and relationships and activities. And and so there was a world of strength to stay in the UK. And, you know, my wife and I had made a conscious decision. We said, you know, at a certain point in time, we are going to decide and either way can work. So there was no sort of I had to go because, you know, but she would come back. So uh, it, it, so it, it was really hard because there was so much at play that was so personal. You know, my social life, my, you know, entertainment and my fear, right? Because exactly I'm now stepping into, I can see exactly how this business is tracking in the UK. I got no idea how it's going to track in New Zealand. And so I'd have to jump over the wall, make it so effectively get literally go back from working in a perfectly nice office with a you know team around me into back into my lounge room on my own trying to build the business. So that was a really hard decision because so many factors at play and um and lots of stakeholders and of course lots of stakeholders who are highly vested my friends didn't want me to go right i was a dive instructor at the time i used to drive the boat a lot you know i had a lot of utility <laughs> for my friends and you know we enjoyed <laughs> hanging out and drinking beer and doing all the things that we did so for them you know didn't really want me to go and then other people were vested at the other end my wife was vested in me because she was actually really enjoying her job enjoying living in new zealand and so that was, you know, when I looked at the stakeholder community. Now, I was fortunate in one regard because one big stakeholder group, which was my family, had sort of made some of their own decisions. My mum and dad had already moved overseas. So it wasn't like me moving to New Zealand was moving away from them. They'd already gone. So I didn't have that tie, but I did have the time my brother was still in the UK and he still is. And so so there was a, you know, the stakeholders had quite strong views for the impact on themselves of my decision. Mm. And having them gaining some advice from them was tricky to try and have the advice be relevant from my perspective versus their perspective. So that was one of the, the hard decisions. The other hard decision, and, and I and I say this because um, it's a, a significant moment in my life and it's why it's in the front of my book, um, was my father died of cancer and the decision to lead his funeral um, ceremony. It's like, I've done some public speaking. I used to be a Toastmaster, so I'm probably a good person to stand up in front of a room full of people. But of the things I've done in my life, that was probably the hardest thing I've ever done was to have to, not have to, I chose to, but was to um, was to lead the, the, the funeral and speak and have all sorts of other things happen around me. And I'd say in both of those cases, when I look back on the decision, I would not change the decision what's come as a result of making that decision has been you know a lot of it unexpected uh and thoroughly uh you know the results have come out where i'm am now i would not have been had i not made those two decisions so um i'm you know very satisfied with the outcome and i'd say if i look around the stakeholders involved in those decisions and, and a good example you know of, of speaking at my funeral my, my brother was there and he was like you know, I don't really want to say anything. It's too, it's too emotional. And so I stood up and started. And then halfway through, he obviously found some freedom to stand up and speak. And that opportunity for him to say something and connect with the family was pretty special. And um, 
sorry, I'm just moved at the memory. Um, yeah, so I think I, I look back and I think, yeah, when I look at those decisions, how I made them, everything I took into account and putting probably being able to put on one side the the immediateness because you know do you want to do this for your father's funeral everything about me said no i don't want to do it you know i, I could have just responded to that but actually being able to step back a little bit and look across the broader picture the same as moving to new zealand when you're somewhere you know you're in the country you've got all your friends around you everything's going great to then say i'm going to walk away from this is really hard and there's a very strong loss aversion challenge there so i'm very happy with how that all worked out so does that answer your question it does and i'm so grateful for you sharing those because i think it just so beautifully encompasses the importance of looking at decision making from both of those perspectives of the emotional side that authenticity that connection to oneself that self-awareness that empowerment but also looking at the data looking at diversity mm -hmm. and looking at the practical steps that sometimes allows you to step outside of those emotions and perceive things from a state of reality and it's just this conversation gives me so much joy i'm so grateful for your time because there's so many golden nuggets that people are going to take away and hopefully it will help transform their lives and how they make their next decision so thank you so much paul i hope so thank you rebecca it's been a wonderful journey and uh, a lot of fun too really enjoyed it thank you so many laughs, <laughs>, <laughs> Uh, okay.